Good morning. I'm going to turn this off here real quick. <laughs> Didn't bring your parka with you today, did you, Kathy? <laughs> well, we, uh, we have kids in service with us today. Kids, we are glad you're in service with us, that you get to worship alongside your parents and with the rest of us. That's always very exciting. Um, now, just a quick little thing for you kids. Just, I'm just talking right to you guys for a second, okay? Sometimes it can feel a little boring to be in here with the adults, huh? I mean, a little hard to pay attention sometimes. Well, the part of the Bible we're going to be at today has a lot of things that you can draw really cool pictures of, like armies and cities and rivers and spears and swords and chariots and waves and mountains and so all kinds of stuff that you can draw that'll maybe help you feel a little less bored in here. So uh, just, just a little pro tip for you. Um, well, we are going to be in Psalm 46 this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Uh, the bold and courageous reformer Martin Luther is well known for standing up to the Roman Catholic Church and sparking the Protestant Reformation. I think few of us would have the courage to do what Martin Luther did. Uh, yet even bold Martin Luther, as brave as he was, even he faced times of serious discouragement and fear and anxiety. His own life, the life of people he cared about, were often in danger. And that was deeply, deeply troubling to him. But in these tough times, Luther was known to turn to his friends and say, Come, let us sing the 46th Psalm. That's where he would turn to in those times of trouble and distress, Psalm 46. And Psalm 46 would actually later go on to be the basis for his most well-known hymn. We sang it this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let me ask you, are you facing great discouragement and distress? Are you feeling overwhelmed by the crashing waves of life's problems that just seem to come again and again and again? Do you feel like the ground is falling out from beneath your feet? If so, then Psalm 46 is for you. Are things going well in life? Are, are things peaceful and stable right now? Then Psalm 46 is for you too. Store up the words of Psalm 46 for when that day of trouble comes. Let's read our text together. Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though its mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray as we come to God's word. 
Our great and mighty God, we thank you for your wisdom and your generosity to us in giving us Scripture, in giving us your Word. Because Lord, in your wisdom, you know and you knew the difficulties and the troubles that your people would face in this life. And Lord, you did not leave us without comfort, without guidance, without direction, without truth, but you have given that to us in your word. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have given us Psalm 46 to fortify us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, Lord, not by pointing our attention to how great we are, but, Lord, by pointing our attention to how great you are. And so this morning, as we come to Psalm 46, Lord, would you give us a great glimpse of your glory and of your majesty, of your power and might, that by faith we would rest in your character. That, Lord, when those troubles come, or maybe if we are in them right now, that we would see we have a refuge and a strength in our God. Lord, would you help me to proclaim your greatness and your word faithfully, accurately, and helpfully today for your glory and the benefit of your people. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at Psalm 46, we see three major sections of our text, each of which uh, teaches us a truth about God and then leads us to an implication for our own life. Uh, It's really a beautiful picture of how good, sound, God-centered doctrine and theology is crucial for dealing with difficulty in life. This is a picture of how good, sound, God-centered theology is crucial, it is necessary, it is vital for dealing with difficulty in life. If your view of God is small or weak or wrong, then it will not help you deal with difficulty, suffering, trials, struggles. Our three sections today, number one, God is our refuge, therefore we will not fear, verses one through three. Number two, God is in our midst, therefore we will not be moved, verses four through seven. And finally, God is exalted, we will have peace, verses eight through 11. Psalm 46 begins with a wonderful declaration of who and what God is to his people. He is our refuge and our strength. This paints a very strong picture of God, doesn't it? He is a refuge, a shelter, a covering for His people. He is our protector, our strong deliverer. That's that's what's put right on the table at the very beginning. Our attention is turned to God, right where it needs to be. You, You know, we sometimes feel like we are our refuge, or that we are strong enough, right? There's, there's a lot of um, you know, talk today about how you can be strong enough. You can do it. It's, it's about you. You have inner strength. You have what it takes to do it. But the psalmist doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, you are your refuge and strength. He says, God is our refuge and strength. It's vitally important from the get-go to realize that God is God and that you are not. God is God, and you are not. He is the refuge. He is the strong one. We need Him. We need Him. We must not look to ourselves when we are going through difficulties and and trials, but to God. That's where we start off in this psalm. And what I love is that uh, the psalmist doesn't just say God is a refuge and strength. He says He is 
our refuge and strength. God has given himself to you, to his people, that you might say, he is my hiding place, he is my protector, he is my refuge. And all of this, of course, comes to us through Christ. In Christ, God has made wide the doors that we would have full access to Him, His blessings, His benefit. But even though God is described this way as our refuge, our strength, at times it may seem like God is far away. Have you ever had a moment like that where you say, God, where are you? Where are you right now? I need you now. Where are you? Where is He in the midst of the trouble? Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 1, he is a very present help in trouble. Literally, in the Hebrew, God is ready to be found. He is ready to be found. As Charles Spurgeon says, God is closer than trouble itself. Think about what that means for God to be described as our help. He doesn't need us. Right? He doesn't say, hey, can you come open this pickle jar for me right here? He doesn't need us. We need Him. We need Him. Right? When a child asks his father for help, it's because the child can't do it. But he knows his father can. God is enough for anything. He is enough for any trouble, any need, any anxiety, any distress, any worry that you might have. God is greater and He is sufficient for that circumstance. And we know this to be true on paper, right? We know this to be true. We would never say out loud, God's not enough. But when trial and difficulty crashes down on us, how often do we try to handle it ourselves? How often do we start immediately coming up with, I'm going to do this plan and this is going to fix this and this will take care of that and I just need to do this and then everything will be fine. And then we don't pray. We don't seek guidance from God's word. We end up drifting away from God's people because we think we are enough. We don't need what God has for us. We don't need Him, right? We are enough. That's how we act practically sometimes. But that never ends well, does it? It never ends well. It just leads to more distress, more worry, more anxiety. Friend, you can't do it. You don't have what it takes in yourself. And the sooner we realize that, the better. Because then we can turn to the one who can, who does have the strength. God will give you more than you can handle. He will give you more than he can handle, but he will not give you more than he can handle. See, the goal of the Christian life is not to avoid trials and testing. It's not to pursue the most comfort. The goal is to endure the trials and distresses and troubles, faithfully depending on God and growing in likeness to Jesus. That's what the goal is for us. And in fact, it is often the trials that God gives us, that he uses to break us of our self-sufficiency and draw us near to him in humility because we can only do anything with God's help. And if God is our refuge, if he is our strength, if he is our help in trouble, then there is only really one rational response for us when we face trials. We see that in verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, we will not fear. This isn't talking about natural fear, right? Like you're swimming on the beach in Florida and the shark fin, you know, pops up in the waves and you're freaking it, right? That's, you should be afraid of that. And you swim back to shore, right? This is talking about the kind of fear that is rooted in unbelief. 
This is talking about the kind of fear that says God is not powerful enough. Rooted in the kind of fear that says God is not near enough to help me. That God is not wise enough to bring me through this situation. Or that God is not good enough to bring blessing out of my suffering. That's the kind of fear we're talking about here. The kind of fear that in unbelief removes God from the equation. That removes God from the equation. Here's what I mean, right? Let's say you're facing a financial challenge. Okay, this is the kind of fear in this psalm that minimizes God's provision, right? Oh, we just got hit with this giant medical bill. I'm fearful I'll never get it paid off. Where's God in that? Where's God in that thought? It completely removes the fact that God provides for his people right out of the equation, doesn't it? That's the kind of fear we're talking about here, the kind of fear that considers everything with a weak or non-existent acknowledgement of God. But notice how, God, or how the psalmist draws a direct link between God's character and the implication for God's people. Because God is our refuge, our strength, the very present help, therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, we should not fear. Therefore, we have no need to fear, no reason to fear, since God is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our present help. How often do we let our fears overwhelm us without considering God's character, His nature, His power, and His promises? How often? If the only time you hear preaching is on Sunday morning, there's a problem, right? Sometimes what we need to do is preach to ourselves. Feeling that fear, feeling that anxiety, we say, Self, God is your refuge. He is your strength. He is your present help. Therefore, you need not fear. Sometimes we have to take ourselves, sit ourselves down, and confront ourselves with theological truth in order to have a godly response. You don't have to be a pastor to preach to yourself. And the psalmist isn't just describing little troubles of life. That certainly qualifies in this psalm. But look at the kind of difficulties he describes in verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble at its swelling. Uh, this is not a picture of little problems, like I can't find my car keys and I have to go to the grocery store, right? This is cataclysmic. This is catastrophic. This is the language of end of the world kind of stuff. This is the stuff that happens that you thought never would and that you cannot imagine going through. And even in the midst of this, God is there. Right? This is language of crisis here. Uh, the earth giving way, that's the ground falling out from under your feet, right? That's an earthquake beyond what you can imagine. We've seen the destruction earthquakes can bring about. The sea roaring and swelling. To the ancient Hebrews, the sea was a scary thing. They did not like sailing. They did not like going on the water. It's roaring and rising. That's a picture of devastating force. Think about this. The mountains being moved into the heart of the sea. Again, in the ancient Hebrews, the mountains were a picture of stability, of longevity, of strength. There's nothing stronger in creation than a mountain, right? they would say. And yet here they are being moved into the heart of the sea. Imagine if the Sierras caved in. That would be terrifying. And even in the midst of all this, 
what is the psalmist communicating? That even in all this, even in the end of the world kind of stuff, God is still near. That even in the end of the world kind of stuff, God is still a present help. That even in crisis, God is your refuge and your strength. What does the raging sea, what does the crumbling earth, what does the moving mountain change about the truths we read in verse 1? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. The mountains themselves tremble and shake, but God's people say, I will not fear because of my God. And since through Christ we've been reconciled to God and forgiven of our sins, that we've been brought into his family, we don't need to fear that God will cease to be our shelter. We don't need to fear that he's going to say, you know what, you've been coming in here too often, out of room, don't have a place for you, go outside. No, for Christ's sake, we have full acceptance in our Heavenly Father's presence. And so while the storms may rage outside the fortress of the living God, there is an unshakable peace inside. Let's look at the next section of our text, verses 4 through 7. God is in our midst. We will not be moved. The psalmist turns his attention in verse 4 to the dwelling place of God itself and uh, the goodness of that place. We read in verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is uh, a, a reference to what the Bible calls Zion. Zion, the city of God. In the Old Testament, the earthly city of Jerusalem is often called Zion. That's where the temple was, right? That's where God's presence was to be found. Jerusalem, of course, uh, was sieged many times by invading forces by other nations, and we see a reference to that in verse 6 here. But earthly Jerusalem was never intended to be the permanent dwelling place of God. Right? God's plan was never to isolate his presence to a building in Palestine. That was for a particular purpose, which was to point forward to the final and ultimate dwelling place of God, which is his people, which is us. Both the New and Old Testament describe this reality, how Zion is really the people of God dwelling with God. That's what Zion is. Uh, for example, in Galatians 4.26, Paul uh, contrasts earthly Jerusalem, which he, he, he basically says is the mother of those who are enslaved to the law, with the Jerusalem above, which is the mother of those who are free in Christ. Hebrews 12.22 speaks of how Christians have already, in a spiritual sense, come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're already there. In Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is not a, uh, a city literally made of stone and brick. When John describes it coming down out of heaven, he says it's like a bride prepared for her husband. It is a symbol of the bride of Christ, the people of God from both Old and New Testament. So Zion, at the end of the day, the city of God, at the end of the day, is the people of God dwelling with God. We could say it's the church throughout the ages, the elect, those who are united to Christ by faith. And the psalmist paints a beautiful picture in verse 4 of a river whose streams make this city glad. This is a picture of peace, of provision, of safety and security, isn't it? In the ancient world, the greatest danger that a city would face 
when they were under siege, was their water supply. If they're surrounded by armies and they have no way to get water, right? Maybe they're used to going down to the river. Well, now they can't. They're surrounded on all sides by enemies. Uh, the people inside the city will start to die. It was the most effective warfare technique in the ancient world is cut off their water supply. But in God's city, there's a gentle river that always supplies water. There's no lack of spiritual supply for those who are in God's city as the Holy Spirit is a fountain of living water in our hearts. And God's even able to bring His people gladness in the midst of assault as we see in verse 6. We jump down to verse 6 for a moment. Uh, we see that the kingdoms and nations of the earth are attempting to assault God and His people. They're raging. They're tottering. Rebelling against God and His city. But their attempts, their attacks cannot overthrow God's city. As Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. The psalmist says this river makes the city of God glad. The people of God may and do face sadness and discouragement and deep, deep grief. It's never right for us to respond with hopelessness. It's never right for us to respond with despair, absent of hope. We, we consider all that God has promised us, all that He has done for us, all that He has given to us, how He has given us all that is in Himself. How can we not always have some place to find spiritual gladness. Now, this is not the same as happiness. This is not the same as like pasting a smile on and pretending everything's okay. That's not what this is. Um, biblical joy is not the fleeting emotion of cheerfulness. That comes and goes. Biblical joy is being able to rest in the Lord's goodness and character even when the tears are falling. This is a deep, soul-sustaining Gladness that goes much deeper than fleeting happiness. And what's more, as we see in verse 5, not only is there a sustaining river in the midst of God's cities that provides and supplies them, but even better than that, God dwells in their midst. God Himself is in the midst of His people. Again, He's not far off. He's not outside the city going and doing something else. He is near both relationally and spatially to His people. He's, he's not limited by space and time. God's not stuck in the first century. He's here and now with you. He, he's everywhere. There is nowhere you can escape from the presence of God. And he is always near to you in covenant relationship as well if you are in Christ. God, many times in Scripture, promises His people that He will be in their midst. Uh, Isaiah chapter 12, verses 5-6 through 6, so sing praises to the Lord, for He's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Or Joel 2.27, You shall know I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The greatest blessing for Israel and for us is to have God in our midst. And these promises were true for the Old Testament saints. They are true for you and me today as well. And in fact, under the New Covenant, Jesus takes this promise of God being in our midst one step further. He tells His disciples, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, 
even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, and in the new covenant will be in you, literally in your midst. God doesn't just dwell near to you, but he is always in our midst since we are filled by his spirit. And because God is in our midst, what's the result for the church? What's the result for you and me, for God's people? Verse 5, she shall not be moved. She shall not be moved. And there is a certainty here, isn't there, that the church will never be conquered. And neither will those who are individually members of it. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. One thing I think is absolutely uh, vivid and uh, a beautiful word picture in this psalm is this word moved in verse 5 is the same word that we find for the mountains moving in verse 2. It's the same word in Hebrew we find for the nations tottering in verse 6. So we have this picture of the, the mountains, the strongest things in creation, being moved into the heart of the sea and the nations of the earth tottering and moving around, uh, being, being uh, attacking God and his people and being overthrown. And yet, what's happening to God's people? They are not being moved at all. They're not being moved at all. It's a contrast there. The mountains may be moved, the nations may totter and fall, but not Zion, not God's people. And the psalmist is clear, because God is in our midst, we shall not be moved, even when everything else is crumbling away. Why? Because God is our strength, our foundation, our rock. He is in the midst of his people. And he doesn't only strengthen us, but as we see in verse 1, he genuinely helps us. And we see it again here in verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. When morning dawns. We may think, why wait till morning? Why wait that long, right? Why delay? Well, God's help is not always when we think it is best, but it is always at the right time. His deliverance, his rescue, his comfort is always seasonable. It is always right. It's always the perfect time and in the perfect way according to not our wisdom, not our goodness, but His. Uh, this phrase here is actually used in um, the, the story we talked about this morning. Exodus chapter 14, verse 27, when the people of Israel are, uh, they are, they have their backs against the Red Sea, nowhere to go in front of them. Pharaoh's armies are chasing them. And we read, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, the water may come back upon the Egyptians. Upon their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched his hand out over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. Same phrase in the Hebrew. It's a, a reference here, really. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw them into the midst of the sea. In the Exodus, God delivered his people in what seemed like the very last second. Right? If you were an Israelite, you were probably wondering, God, why don't you smoke those guys while they're still a couple miles off, right? But that's not what God did. And yet he delivered his people and he brought glory to his name. When morning dawned in the right time. And just as God defended his people and defeated the enemies of his people in the Exodus, he does so here in the psalm too. As the nations rage, as the kingdoms totter in their rebellion against God, he merely utters his voice and the earth melts. Think about that for a minute. The nations of the earth are in their armor with their weapons and they are simply wax before the mere voice of God. Think about the power of some of the weapons we've developed today. 
unimaginable power. A hydrogen bomb, right? modern nuclear weapons. And yet that is nothing compared to the power, the mere voice of God. And he brings that power to bear for the defense of his people. And the psalmist introduces a wonderful a summarizing verse in, in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is what that means. He, he commands all the hosts of heaven with innumerable angels. He is powerful, but beyond that, he is with us. He is not against us. He is not far off from us. The God who commands the armies of heaven is with you. He has brought you onto his side through Christ, reconciling you and adopting you, turning you from an enemy in your sin and rebellion into his child and his friend. He is not against you, but in Christ he is for you and he is with you. This God. And the psalmist describes him as the God of Jacob. We're reminded of God's covenant faithfulness. We're reminded that God kept his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that he's faithful to his promises, faithful to his word. And even when his, his own people rebelled and were disobedient, God still kept his covenant, didn't he? He still redeemed them, didn't he? And from their midst would come the Messiah, Christ. God ensured the deliverance of his people in ages past, and he continues to ensure our deliverance now, both from the condemnation of our own sin and the corruption of this world through the hope of the resurrection that is to come. So we will not be moved because our God is in our midst. He is here with us. And as we come to the final section of this psalm, our attention is indeed directed to the future, when God will bring true peace upon the earth. God is exalted and we will have peace, verses 8 through 11. In 1971, uh, John Lennon of Beatles fame released his chart-topping hit, Imagine, which contains the following lyrics. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Now, John Lennon's solution for world peace was simply to eliminate all the, th all the things that make us different. Right? That was, that was his, his solution, his proposal. And according to, to John Lennon and many others who share his outlook, a world peace is possible if we just try to eliminate those things and get along. Right? We can do it, we just have to try a little bit harder. But the psalmist declares that the real way to world peace is down a completely different path. Completely different path. In verse 8, the psalmist instructs us to come and behold the works of the Lord. Come and see what God has done. Uh, but these are not necessarily light-hearted, happy works. God's not following the proposal of imagine here. Um, instead, the psalmist declares that God has brought desolation upon the earth. That's kind of a weighty word, isn't it? And this desolation refers specifically to the kind of destruction that follows God's judgment. Talking about the kind of destruction that follows God's judgment. Uh, specifically here, the destruction that follows God's judgment on those, we read in verse 6, who are raised up in rebellion against Him. 
Come, behold, and see what God's judgment has done. It's in the context of God's righteous and wrathful judgment that true world peace can ever be found, as we see in verse 9. Does God who makes wars cease to the end of the earth? I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was never a war again? That'd be a great thing. But God is the only one who can make that happen. John Lennon's error was that he thought human beings were the solution, when in reality it is human beings who are the problem. It's only by removing wickedness and by removing those who would perpetuate rebellion against God, it's only by dealing with Satan who leads men in rebellion against Christ that any kind of lasting world peace could ever be found. And God is the only one who is just and righteous enough to carry out such a judgment. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. And, and look how this is described. Look how this desolation is described. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He's destroying the weapons of man. He destroys the weapons of war that have been used to murder innocent people, to assail his church, to persecute his his people to carry out unjust wars motivated by greed. God brings all of these means and methods to nothing. To nothing. What tools does humanity have any longer to wage war? Well, the psalmist says none. There will come a day where those things will no longer be. God completely neutralizes the nations of the earth. And this doesn't just apply to the weapons of human warfare, but to the fiery darts of Satan as well. God renders all who are against him and his people powerless. Powerless. There will be a time when God's people will dwell in safety and in peace, when Satan and the wicked are swept away by the fiery judgment of God. We have to understand that the only way true global peace will be possible is if all causes of sin are removed from the earth. And when Christ returns, that's exactly what happens. Satan and the wicked are defeated. They are overthrown. And the saints are glorified and made perfect. There is no more cause for sin anywhere to be found in God's new creation. As we look in verse 10, we see the result of God's mighty works of judgment and desolation. He alone is God and He is to be exalted. As He brings the nations of the earth to nothing, as He displays His power he says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. This is an admonishment to the wicked, to those who would rebel against him, who rage in vain against the Lord and his anointed, as Jim read this morning in Psalm 2. This is a rebuke to them, telling them to be still, to cease in their opposition. It's almost like a divine, say, uncle, be still and know that I am God. They're commanded to be still before the one who's infinitely greater and more powerful than they are. To know and acknowledge he alone is God. There will come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But on the flip side too, there's a comfort and an encouragement to God's people. They're told to be still, to know He is God. 
In the face of terror, the face of anxiety, of distress, trouble, when our hearts are restless, when we can't stop thinking about this thing that we're going through, when we are obsessing over it, when we want to take matters into our own hands, when we are, we are just obsessed with trying to have some kind of control over what's going on in our lives, God reminds us to be still. To know that He is God. To put those things in His hands. Because He is God and we are not. This is a great and tender reminder to those that call, God is called to be his people. Be still. Know that I am God. It's an invitation to be humble, to rest in view of his greatness and his might while we ourselves are so weak. It is to say, Lord, I can't do this. You are God. I simply must rest in your plan and your provision and your purpose. Be still and know that I am God, he says. And as God commands mankind, all people, to be still before him, he declares that he will be exalted. Right? This psalm does not paint a picture of a, a cuddly God. Right? This, is, this is not a soft, tame, weak God. This is not like a, a benevolent grandfather in the sky who just you know, does... Whatever seems nice, right? <laughs> Which grandpas are great. I'm not hating on grandfathers here. Very thankful for grandfathers, right? But this is not a soft, cuddly, tame God. He's not a puppy. We're dealing with a holy, fierce, powerful, transcendent God who is jealous for his glory. God's greatest goal in life is not to please you. It's not to please me. His greatest goal in life, his greatest purpose, is not to make sure you're happy. His greatest purpose and his greatest goal is the glory of his name, which is not disconnected from your happiness, by the way. But he is the God who works all things to that end, that he would be exalted, that he would be glorified, even in his judgments. The greatest good for you and me as human beings created by God is to exalt and glorify him. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. God has made you to do that. And indeed, God exalts himself many times in, in, in the Bible over the pagan nations that rise up against him and his people, but greater than that, he's certainly exalted among the nations, but he will be exalted in the earth. All the prideful of the earth are laid low before a mighty God. Isaiah 2, 10 and 11 describes this day. It says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord alone will will be exalted in that day. In the day of Christ's return, who can remain proud? A few years ago, I was at the State Fair. We had a church booth there. We were doing evangelism, and um, a man came up very upset. Uh, he said very proudly that when he died, he was going to march right up to God's throne, shake his fist at God, and chew God out for the dementia that his grandmother was suffering from. And, and dementia is terrible. God, is not, God does not delight in dementia. 
But this man would surely not make such a claim if he was beholding the terrible majesty of God in judgment. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day in all the earth. And it is in that day that the people of God enter into an eternal peace and rest. Enjoying the new creation without the corruption of sin that we know in our own bodies or that we see in the world around us. You see, God's exaltation is directly linked to our peace and security. Isaiah 33, 5-6 says, The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion. He will fill His people with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. When God is exalted, His people are at most peace. They're at most peace. And the psalmist ends this psalm with a a repeated reminder. We saw it in verse 7. We see it again in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It really summarizes the whole psalm, doesn't it? And so we must ask, is the living God a fortress for you? Not just on paper, but do you really run to Him when you are in crisis? Do you really believe He can be a refuge and a strength for you? Do you believe He's totally trustworthy and dependable, not just for daily life, but perhaps more importantly, to save you eternally? Do you believe what He says in His Word, that there is a shelter from wrath that sin deserves in Christ His Son, and that by faith you are brought under that that covering, that shelter? Can you rest in His covenant love for you, which has been proven once for all in the Father sending His Son, the Son willingly dying in your place for your sins, and the Spirit applying that salvation to you personally? And then resting in that salvation? Can you not trust that God continues to love you and care for you and provide for you? If He did not only give up His Son, how much will He not also give us all things that we need? God doesn't just save us and forget about us. But He has set His love upon you in Christ. And that love continues even in the storms raging, even in the mountains falling into the heart of the sea. He remains a refuge and a strength, a very present help in trouble. What a comfort that should be for us. May we say and believe with the Apostle Paul, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of that love, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let's pray. Our Lord, you are indeed, as you say, a refuge and strength. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has given yourself fully to us in Christ, that we may claim you as our God, that we may say he is my refuge and my strength. And Lord, would you help us to run to you? And Lord, we confess that sometimes we seek refuge and and, and, and deliverance in other things, in the things that you've made, rather than in you yourself. 
But Lord, this is to try to hide from a hurricane in a cardboard box. You are so much greater and so much stronger, Lord. And you never promise us a comfortable life. You never promise us a pain-free life. But you promise not only to give us what we need to endure suffering, but Lord, you promise that you alone can and do bring good things out of that suffering. And Father, I pray for those who are in difficulty right now this morning. Father, would you show yourself to them as a refuge and a strength and may they flee to you for comfort. Lord, we thank you that you indeed are enough, that you are closer than trouble itself, that you never leave us or forsake us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.